Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with the awesome Najahi events. More about them later. Today's guest, hear this. Okay, icebergs, caves, not on top of the ocean, under the ocean. This lady dives in underground caves and underground below the sea icebergs. Not only is she an extremely skilled cave diver and underwater explorer, but she also leads expeditions into extreme and unknown environments to advance scientific and geographic knowledge. She's overcome her fears to go where nobody else has ever gone, exploring the deepest, darkest, untouched realms of the underwater world. She really is one talented and motivated woman. She's also a filmmaker, an author, a speaker, sharing her discoveries and experiences with people all over the world. She holds a proud place in the International Scuba Divers Hall of Fame, and her work has been broadcast in the likes of BBC and Discovery Channel. She has a true love for the planet and is a climate advocate, leaning on her knowledge and findings to educate people on the diversity of their geographical heritage. I'm really excited to find out more about her underwater experiences and encounters. There's just so much in the deep blue sea that we don't know about. So I'm looking forward to hearing more about the things that she has seen whilst exploring. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jill Heinerth. Well, Jill, thank you so much for coming to join us on the show this afternoon. Another person with another extraordinary tale to tell. And I'm sure you're going to normalize everything that you've done and make it seem so easy and so simple and so regular because it's part of your life. But for a lot... Probably not. <laughs> a, lot of pe- a lot of people are, uh, are really terrified of the ocean. And they're terrified of the ocean, even the shallows at night, let alone the deep ocean. So how does... How does someone get involved in stuff like that? Is it a, a fascination from a young child or was it by accident? No, totally fascination from my childhood. I mean, I actually wanted to be an astronaut <laughs> when I was a kid. Grew up watching the Apollo missions, but um, we didn't have a Canadian space program nor female astronauts. So <laughs> but I was also watching, you know, Jacques Cousteau's Undersea World on television on Sunday nights and and just like scratching my head. Like I was just glued to the TV set, seeing the wonders of what he was revealing to humanity. I think a lot of us don't realize how much of the planet is covered by ocean. It's such a large percentage. It's in, it was, is it 75 or 73%? What's the number? Yep, the earth is 70% water, my body is 70% water, and we're all kind of intertwined in this dance of life. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, that's, are, we, are we really 70% water? Yes, we are. Oh. Well, yeah, when we're young, we're 70%, and we slowly dry up and desiccate through our lives. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm 50 now, so I must be about 30% water then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So you're a young child. Did, did, was was mum and dad or any siblings as fascinated by the whole subject matter as you as a youngster? No, I'm a complete outlier in my family. I mean, we were all outdoorsy. We all loved the water. But when I suggested that I wanted to dive, they were like, people don't dive in Canada. It's too cold, you know. <laughs> 
Do, do you know who Wim Hof is? Yes, I do. Yeah. And have you heard his story about how he got involved? He's amazing. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, people all over the world following his methodology yeah. to go into cold water. Yeah. When you hear his story, for him, his wife taking her own life and leaving him with his four kids, um, uh, the, the cold water took away the overbearing pain that he was feeling from her loss. And so mm -hmm. going in the icy water, he said, the first time I jumped in the water, I had no pain. And it was the first time I had no pain. So I went back the next day and I jumped in the icy water again. And again, I had no pain. And so his brain has connected the ice cold water and the ice cold environments with a release of pain, you know, the pain going away. And it fascinates me mm -hmm. how our minds can mm -hmm. work when now that guy has built his whole life around the fact that, that you can do this, but for all of us, we don't have that pain as the kind of transition between the release. You going mm. into icy cold water, if I ever go into icy cold water, that's where the pain is. <laughs> no, I still feel pain. <laughs> I mean, uh, we, we call them slurpees here in North yeah. America, you know, slushy, slushy ice drinks. Um, still, when you jump into the cold water, it still feels like one of those slushy headaches. <laughs> Brain freeze. <laughs> yes. Okay, let's talk about your career because I'll ramble on and have a good old chin wag with you otherwise. And I'm sure the, I'm sure the audience <laughs> yeah. will want to be hearing a bit more. <laughs> Tell me, you, you get into this as a young, young, when did you first dive? How old were you? Uh, when I was 16 years old, I had my first experience in a pool when I was a lifeguard, but I didn't get fully qualified as a diver until my late 20s. It was it was more a matter of, you know, I didn't know people that did it. I had to raise the money. My family was like, what? You know, so so it, I was a late bloomer. <laughs> so you get into it in your in your in your 20s. And, and do you look back now as thinking that you missed an opportunity to learn younger or are you just grateful that you had the chance when you did? Oh, no, I'm just grateful I had the chance when I did. I mean, you know, everything in life, the good, bad and the ugly, like form who you are today. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty grateful for my roots and everything that I was involved in. And so you, you take this diving course, you know, in the in it's called Paddy, isn't it? The, the, the diving yep. course a lot mm -hmm. of them take. You take a diving course, we, we do it in a pool and then we get out into shallow waters a little bit after that as well. So we, were you just incredibly inquisitive and just wanting to see and feel and experience more. And if you were, were, were there ever points that you were, you were scared and thinking to yourself with apprehension about the next move you were gonna make or the place you were gonna go? Did you ever feel that or was it always based around wonderment? Oh, I mean, I've always been curious and wanted to explore, but I'm scared every day. <laughs> that's human. That's normal. And and I want to dive with people that are scared because it means we understand risk and we care about the outcome. So so fear is is fine. But but what I say to people is you don't want to run from fear. I mean, if you do, you'll lead the most sterile and boring lifestyle. I mean, I'd rather step towards it to do something new because I think that's where that intersection is with discovery and exploration there's gonna be a lot of people listening here that haven't got a blooming clue about <laughs> diving and and what's involved yep. and and the, the the you know going to the bottom of the swimming pool hurts their ears and so mm -hmm. the, the, you know people would be thinking about going diving you know 
how deep do you go? What's 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 reasonable to do? And you know, you see stuff on TV, and you see these free divers that go down and hold their breath for X amount of minutes and stuff. But what are yeah. the stages? So let's say I got into diving and I started to enjoy it, and I'm like, come on, in, Jill, yeah. show me the ropes, okay? And I've passed my my paddy course. How how, how deep do, can humans go reasonably? And what are the risks? I mean, so with a paddy course, you're just learning basic recreational scuba diving. You're wearing a single tank on your back. You're going 20 meters deep. Um, I've been as deep as 140 meters and I use a different kind of life support technology that's a lot more similar to what an astronaut wears for a spacewalk. So it's a, a called a rebreather that recirculates your exhaled breath so that you're not making bubbles and you can like completely optimize the gases that you're breathing. So it's a an entirely different level of complexity. <laughs> and when you see, you see these industrial divers that dive off of oil rigs, they have these 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 devices that they get into. And I hear the term the bends, which is obviously a slang mm -hmm. term for something much more uh, sinister. Um, mm -hmm. That uh, because of decompression or something from when they're coming back back up from the deep water, mm -hmm. is that when you go as deep? Did you say 120 meters? 140. 100, yeah. it, mm -hmm. 140 meters is a long way down. It's a long way down. Is there, is there any light down there? Uh, we call it, in the ocean, we call it the twilight zone um, or the mesophytic zone. Uh, but most of the diving that I do, there is no light whatsoever because I my specialty is diving in underwater cave systems. So I'm underneath uh, a roof, you know, basically. And I might be going like three kilometers into the planet on missions as long as like 22 hours before I can slowly come back to the surface and, and reacclimate with surface pressures again. Okay, I've seen people potholing, okay? And they go in caves and they kind of like moving themselves through, squeezing through gaps and tight pieces and whatnot. Now, yeah. that, that frightens the life out of me because... Yeah. Of the thought of getting stuck, you know, I've got a bit of a belly and a bit some love handles. The thought of getting stuck is quite terrifying. When you go into underwater cave systems, how do they compare to what we could see on top of the surface in cave systems? Uh, they're pretty similar. In fact, um, some of the spaces that I might squeeze through would be the equivalent of squeezing underneath your bed. So my shoulders are scraping the ceiling, my belly's on the floor, and I'm relying on a life support system to deliver every breath underwater. But other spaces are as big as, you know, a football stadium and I can barely see the walls and the floors and the ceilings with my light. And and that's equally dangerous because of the complete disorientation that can occur in a space like that. You've got to be a little bit mad to do this. You've got you've got you've got there's got to be something about your 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 chemical makeup in your brain that makes you want to pursue the kind of stuff that 99% of the population would go, yeah, all right, yeah, okay, yeah. Well, maybe I'll give that a miss. So, where where does this desire come from to 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 spend time doing this because it's really unusual, isn't it? Well, I think it's genetic. <laughs> so in my book, I write about the 7R gene that about 15% of the population has. And that's like the sensation-seeking, novelty-seeking genetic code. So if I had lived million, well, hundreds of thousands of years ago, I might have been like the hunter-gatherer in the family where other people were staying home and tending to the, the kids and the crops, right? Uh, and so I think that, that that sort of genetic code still resides in me today. And I'm constantly seeking learning opportunities and curiosity, and, and I'm willing to take on risks as long as I you know, recognize the, the reward or the service to society that those those risks will will offer. I mean, 
because you know I'm not mad I, I I have to have a really good sense of risk because I've lost over 100 friends and colleagues to diving accidents throughout the course of my career and that's um, you know that's pretty hard to take those those are my friends and um, I have to learn from each one of those you know errors or errors in judgment or mistakes um, that they made in order to you know do it as safely as possible we we seem to be really working hard to destroy our planet at the moment we seem to be kind of obsessed with trying to destroy it and you know, various documentaries show up on TV that just, you know, cement that belief that I have. There was one recently about the fishing industry that was on Netflix. Um, I forget what it was called, but it came down to the fact that we can talk about plastic waste and everything else, but the the the, the overfishing is the problem at the end of the day. With, with your experience and what you've seen, what, what are the big problems that we're causing and, and what, what are we not doing about it that we should? Well, I mean, the two things that I really focus on with my work are water literacy, so understanding where your water comes from, how you might be unintentionally polluting it or overusing it, and how to protect it for future generations. And the other thing that I like to communicate about is climate change, because uh, climate change is sort of, it's happening in a series of slow steps. I mean, everybody can look back to their childhood and say, wow, the world was different when I was growing up. But I see changes in the oceans and in the polar regions that occur in the course of a season that terrify me. I mean, when I go to the Arctic and I see the ice setting up later and melting away earlier every year and there's less of it and there's it's thinner. Um, it's like, you know, somebody's left the fridge door open in the north and um, and nobody's shutting it. And so I think that the images the stories that I bring back to people uh, you know, help them to see those changes and hopefully, you know, get involved in a process of, of fixing some of these big problems. We have the UN Global Sustainability Goals um, that have to be achieved by 2030, um, which include some of these areas. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it's going to take a commitment from big business to try and make that, that difference. Um, it seems, to, it seems to me that no matter what he's done, it's just nowhere near enough for people to even raise enough of an eyebrow or enough people to raise enough of an eyebrow to take it seriously. Do you sometimes think you're really swimming against the tide with this? or And does it, does it become disheartening for you sometimes? Or, or do you feel there's areas that we actually are making some progress? I mean, it can be frustrating, but what I would like to say to people is, is you know stay optimistic i'm still optimistic and you have to understand that every small action or course that you take in your life can make a difference and and for me it comes right back down to cave diving so the, i had a dive where i led a scientist into a cave to get uh an algal sample and it was a really small cave like one of those ones where we're scraping our way into the system when we went to turn around um, she pivoted in place, kicked up the silt, and then in the confusion of not being able to see, because the water is just like thick clay now, she got stuck. So this is the person who is now the cork in the bottle containing my life. I could not get around her. I've got to get her unstuck and solve the problem that we're facing. Now, it's easy in a moment like that to go, 
oh my God, two women are gonna die in this cage system today. It's gonna be world news. And from there, I mean, she's writhing around, stuck, wedged. We have a safety guideline that leads us back to the entrance and it breaks. So I'm hanging onto a screaming, writhing person underwater. I'm hanging on to a broken guideline. We no longer have a way out. And I realize that if I don't solve these problems, <laughs> um, we're both gonna die. But I can't focus on how I'm gonna get out of the cave right now, because there's too much going on. It's like these great problems that we have to solve with our planet. They're too big. So we have to take small steps towards success. So from there, I've got a person blocking my way out. I've got a broken guideline. Now my breathing supply is breaking down and it's spewing gas. I can only breathe by turning off the tank, turning it on to take a small breath, and then turning it off again. And in the process of getting her unstuck and then starting to patch the guideline, I lost track of her. So now I'm thinking, I can't, I can't leave without her. If I abandon my dive buddy, I will never, ever be able to live with myself. So I have to make a really difficult choice to go further into the belly of the beast, into the cave, to make sure that I'm not leaving her behind. And then slowly, methodically, like control the panic, control the fear, and patch the guideline again, and search for her and take my time. So meanwhile, she had made it out of the cave, and called for an emergency basically and so for 73 minutes i was dead to my friends dead to my family as people rushed to the scene expecting to recover my body while i'm like turning on that tank valve to take a breath and turning it off and turning on a tank valve and turning it off so for me that's such a great lesson in solving much bigger problems like we can't figure out how to solve these big ones yet. So in the meantime, just make the next best step and understand that that step counts and it puts you in a positive direction towards success and survival. You talk to people all around the world and being optimistic is, is like having hope at the end of the day. Um, and as long as you've got hope, then you can keep moving forward. I suppose if everybody gives up hope, then that's when it's a problem. The fact that you were, how far down were you in that cave? Uh, so I was a good uh, 1,200 feet inside the cave system in a really, you know, small, slow space to get out of. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of, of, of the story of the boys in Thailand that were stuck <laughs> that time. I mean, obviously, you know all about that because of the divers involved that saved those boys' lives. Um, that was there any point that you sat there and you were turning that gas on and off, the air on and off, that you thought this is not going to happen? Oh, yeah. But you just can't let those negative thoughts get into your, your mind. I literally, I have to fight to keep what I call the chattering monkeys away. So when you're terrified, this is like underwater or anything else in life, just take a deep breath, like the way a freediver does, right down into their hips and all the way up into your neck. And as you exhale slowly, you just say, emotions, you won't serve me well right now. And if you can separate the emotions and then just stay pragmatic, uh, it, it makes all the difference in the world. And, and I didn't learn that from diving. I learned that as a young woman fighting off a burglar in my house. Um, the most terrifying thing that you can possibly imagine dealing with someone who's literally stalks you in your house and attacks you. And uh, from that whole experience, I, I 
well, I mean, at first I carried the PTSD of that encounter for, for years until I realized that I couldn't change it. And I had to figure out what was there that I could use. What, what could I gather that was positive out of that experience to teach me how to, how to do better in life and, and survive difficult situations. And it is that removal of the emotional things that helps. Funny how something as traumatic as that can take us to a play, place where we get so much strength from. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you, you go through, I mean, the, the thought of burglars coming in your house and invading your space and, and doing what they do is, is terrifying for anybody. I was literally having a conversation with somebody about this the other day, literally a couple of days ago, and they were like, the burglars came in. She said, I had to sell the house. I just, I, mm. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't live in it anymore. I never felt safe again. But when people go through this kind of experience and then from that experience comes some form of great strength and optimism or, or ability to cope, um, under, under pressure again. I find that fascinating. I suppose Wim Hof as well, that, that's an example from earlier, yeah. how the power of the mind can be so strong. You know, if there was a way that we could, you know, we, we live here in Dubai and, and D- Dubai has no rain. And so we have to rely mm-hmm. on the, the, the water from the sea. And so we have great big desalination plants uh, and they bring in the seawater, clean it for us to use. And, um, and water costs more than gasoline here. So just to give you an yeah. idea, um, and it's, you, you think about it, are, are we doing the right things? Are we doing the best things? And it's like when, when somebody goes through a really kind of tough experience, it becomes a never again type of response. And that never again type of response brings so much strength to someone's mm-hmm. outlook moving forward. You're focused on educating Canada, would you say primarily or, or, or educating the world? Oh, yeah, I do, you know, presentations and outreach and talks all over the world. So, yeah, I hope that sometimes that my story can help um, ignite people's, you know, curiosity, passions, optimism and and dedication to solving big world issues. I'm making is I'm going to take this very selfishly in another direction right now, because Mm -hmm. I I start filming at the end of this month, a TV show um, that we hope that will be on Netflix in the new year and focusing on um the global sustainability goals and so i can't give a load of it away i'll I'll stop the record button and i'll tell you everything but while it's been recorded (laughs) i can't give too much away and the 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 filming of that show is focused on understanding the 17 sdg goals um and trying to work to a solution for each of those goals i have big ambitions and i'm sure our ambitions are fairly similar with what we want people to get and people to do something with um but Actually, if we can just get a few people to move in the right direction, then maybe they can get a few people to move in the right direction too. And maybe that's how that, that starts and works and becomes effective. See, I figure that my, my adventure experiences uh, will draw people in and fascinate them. And I mean, I'm literally swimming through the veins of Mother Earth. I'm swimming in the sustenance of the planet, the very drinking water that we draw up from the ground to serve humanity and wildlife and even the industries that we you know, require uh, to, to live on. Um, so those stories and taking people to a place that they could never have imagined will fascinate them. And while their mouth is agape, I'm going to shove a little truth in there too. <laughs> you know? And, and just tell them about the things that I see underwater and the, the evidence of, of climate change and, and loss of drinking water resources. Uh, 
and I think that when we can fascinate and enthrall people, it might take us further than than always sharing the pictures of the coves full of bleeding dolphins. Like there is a place for that kind of shock um, journalism and documentary filmmaking, but I also believe there's a an important thing to you know to connect people with the wonder of the planet as well and and make them ambassadors for protecting it so i've seen people transformed by the stories and the images and and i think that maybe we get a little bit further with hope than despair mm. david attenborough did it recently very well didn't he and the last stuff that we that came out from him where it was like we're causing this problem but there's hope you know, and it, it was it was giving the solution as well, rather than it just being it's all negative. There's hope, and if the if we were just to do these things, if we were just to take these steps and this action, then guess what? We can fix this. You know, mm-hmm. we can fix this. You know, don't 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 think it's all doom and gloom. We we we've got this if we want this. We're not too far yet, and so and and, and you you leave feeling empowered and uh, and inspired and motivated. Do you remember making your first TV show? Do you remember the first one you did? Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and tell me, how, how was that for you? Was it, was it a scary experience or exciting? Or <laughs> I'm frequently doing, you know, completely new things for myself. So literally the largest iceberg in recorded history had calved away from the Antarctic ice shelf, like in the Ross Sea. And my colleague and I pitched to National Geographic to go down and be the first people ever to cave dive inside an iceberg. And National Geographic said, oh my gosh, this is an amazing story. Here's the money, go. So I'm literally 10 days into a sea crossing from New Zealand to the Ross Sea when the scientific director says to me, Jill, how long have you been writing documentary films? And I said, well, geez, about 10 days now. (laughs) So so there I was in the harshest climate on the planet doing something that nobody had ever done before, cave diving inside an iceberg as it's calving and breaking up around me um, and gathering this incredible footage and stills to share with the world. but every day was terrifying. There were, you know, new dangers to face. And then, and then even the whole terrifying nature of being responsible for writing this, this film was, uh, it's a huge challenge. You're going to have to take me inside an iceberg. (laughs) You just talk about it like you went to the supermarket. It's like, yeah, I went inside this iceberg. Yeah, but the National Geographic thing. What the heck? Give me, give me. Give me some sense of, you know, here's my picture. Yeah. Okay, I'll give you my picture and I'm, probably the audience will think the same. Um, iceberg, great big thing, floating in the sea, probably not moving very quickly because it's so big. Going inside, like going, in, it's probably all not white, but blue white in there as you look around. And <laughs> what is it? Yeah. Well, to begin with, to get there, we had to make this 12-day crossing of the Southern Ocean through seas as high as 20 meters. So by the time I got there, I was beaten to a pulp and had been seasick for at least a week of that. Then we get down there and we only had a hypothesis that we would find cave tunnels and passageways inside of icebergs. But in my brain, it would be formed much in the way caves are formed in limestone. And it did end up being an accurate hypothesis. So we start searching for places and ways that we can get into cracks and crevices in these massive bodies of ice. But we have to face the fact that these things are moving, 
they're breaking, they're melting, they're calving. Uh, and then, you know, on my very first iceberg cave dive, I discovered that there were absolutely ferocious currents just ripping through these places. Like on my first iceberg cave dive, I was far inside this iceberg. I had entered through this crevasse that was like textured like a golf ball carved by the hand of the sea in little rivets. And as you swim in and then you start to dro drop down, you see these different layers. Like sometimes the ice is white. Sometimes it's transparent with little bubbles in it. Sometimes there's like organic matter trapped. And then at other times you see suddenly a, a passageway, like a tunnel that's been carved by the moving water. But that very first iceberg cave dive, when I turned around to come out, the doorway that I had gone into was now blocked. This massive piece of ice had calved away and closed the door for the cave that we had just swam into. And I had to find another way out. Um, so, I mean, that was just day one. <laughs> Um, you know, beyond that, my last cave dive inside this iceberg, we were literally thousands of feet inside the iceberg when the current picked up so strong that I needed to use all my physical effort that I could muster to get out. And then even when I got out of the tunnels and passageways, the current was pressing down from above so strong that I couldn't figure out how to get up to the surface out of this crack. Um, so we had some pretty close calls there. And, and after our last dive inside the iceberg, um, this massive body of ice that we had just been inside of and we were preparing to go back inside of, literally a square mile of it broke away and just disintegrated into pieces that turned into slush as far as the eye could see. So, you know, at that moment, I'm like, it's time for us to go home. <laughs> and how, how many other like-minded types do the crazy stuff that you do? How big's that community? Oh, you know, it's still a pretty small community, especially on the hairy end of, of exploration, but, but we're friends, you know, I have this sort of worldwide collection of, of, you know, cave diving, you know, exploration enthusiasts, uh, but it's a small community and there are not many women in that group. There's, there's often tales of women that uh, are worried about their husband's antics, taking risks, dangerous experiences, lifestyles, I don't know, skydiving or whatever it may be. How does your husband cope with you? Oh, it's hard. I mean, I have to recognize that, um, you know, when you send your spouse away on a job every day that puts them at great risk, it's uh, you're the one left at home waiting and that waiting is painful. I mean, after that dive where uh, the scientists and I were in the cave and I was like an extra 73 minutes getting out, after that, he, he it broke my husband. I mean, you can imagine that everybody wrote me letters and emails expressing the things that they would have written in my eulogy if I hadn't made it out that day. And after that, he was like, how much longer do you have to do this? When are you going to be done? You know, uh, when can we just do something ourselves that's fun and exciting that doesn't involve diving and, and, and you getting killed? I mean, he's seen me write the eulogies. He's been to the funerals with me and that's, it's terrifying. So like after that experience, we actually got on our bicycles. He said, you know, do something with me. 
that's the length of one of your expeditions. And we got on our bicycles and we rode 7,000 kilometers together across Canada. As um, you do. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Most people were like, yeah, we did something together. We went to the movies, then we went for some, <laughs> some Red Lobster. And then after that, you know, <laughs> he had a romantic night in front of the fire. No. Okay, let's just ride 7,000 kilometers across the country. Well, he actually said to me, you know, what is it that you've always wanted to do that doesn't involve diving? What can we do together? And I said, well, like, since I was a kid, I always wanted to ride our, my bike across Canada. And he's like, does it have to be so hard? <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness me that must but that was one of the most fun expeditions of my life you know just doing it with my partner was amazing and and during that expedition we actually toured a documentary film that i'd made about water literacy so every night we had a goal to find someone to show the movie to like Sometimes it was in a campground, sometimes a church or a club or a dive shop or community hall. Uh, but we showed that movie almost every single night. And every time I talked about what I do and why I do it, he would look at me with that sad resignation of, oh, wow, this is what makes her who she is. Like, I have to support that. And, and so when you found the right partner in life, you find someone very special, then then despite the fact that it terrifies them, they'll support what you yeah, do. Yeah, you can't fight it. Yeah. It's in it's in you, isn't it? It's in you, you know. Yeah. I, I got yeah. I got the bug of climbing and so I wanted to do the seven summits and I'm off to Mount Elbrus in um August and I've done Killy and Everest Base Camp and all these uh, Mount Tubkal and stuff the, these climbs and and so I so when you explain, you know, the, your passion for for diving the way you do, it's like this this something that's built into who you are. It's almost an identity, and 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 and, yeah. and sometimes words will never give justice to the, the feeling of why. Do you feel that too? Absolutely, and I'm sure you have a seven R gene as well. <laughs> yeah, and I mean that's why we have podcasts. Why I shoot movies and take pictures and tell stories. Um, I mean, we also have that that desire to share it with people, to share it with the world. That's that's equally come and join our madness. You need to be with us on this crazy <laughs> journey. We're going to get you excited. It's like yeah, it's like I mean, in kindergarten we had show and tell in my school, and, and that was my favorite thing. I'm still the kindergarten kid doing show and tell. You know? I'm having such fun talking to you. Talk to me about a couple of serious subjects that we can we can we can help um, give some education to some people and start and start seeing if mm -hmm. we can we can influence people in a positive way uh, you touched upon yeah. water literacy <laughs> let's elaborate on that for a minute please T tell me sure. tell me the challenges involved in that and uh, and what you're trying to do to, to, to help make it better well, I think the biggest challenge is is helping people to you know understand and visualize their um, their contributions to you know a positive or negative future I mean the ocean begins beneath your feet no matter where you live on this planet you know the water and whatever contamination is in it soaks into the ground and then is transported through the ground sometimes I'm swimming through those spaces beneath your feet you know I've swam under a golf course community under a bowling alley under a Sonny's barbecue restaurant you know an industrial park or whatever um, and so everything you do on the surface of the earth will ultimately be returned to you to drink and will ultimately reach the oceans and affect their health and quality as well. Um, and so it doesn't matter if you're in, you know, the middle of the continent, far from any body, body of water, you have an effect on that water. And it's important to understand that. 
I mean, maybe the one positive thing we'll take away from this COVID crisis is that people will finally understand the interconnectivity that we all have, that, you know, one small speck of virus in one part of the planet can affect all of us. And it's the same with water. It's the same with climate change. We have to be global citizens. Hmm. Now, let's okay. Let's give some steps that people can follow. I mean, you, you hear you hear this kind of stuff. Um, um, do you really need to leave the tap on all the way through cleaning your teeth? You know, do you really need to leave it on? Do you need to, you know to flush the toilet as much as you do? Do you do you know? Are you aware of the water that you consume, the amount that you consume? Um, and I think a lot of the time people are, are oblivious to it. You know, as a kid, my dad mm -hmm. would walk around the house huffing and puffing, turning light switches off, going, "Do you know how much electricity costs? Do you know? Do you know? You don't pay the bill. <laughs> yes. Turn the bloody light switches off." <laughs> and oh my gosh, I think we had the same dad. <laughs> and, and the only room in the house where we would have the light on is where we were sat, because the, the rest of the house was in darkness because he'd been busy running around switching the lights off. And so, yep. you know, and he, he was coming in from, from, you know, the, I pay the electricity bill. But, you know, uh, we, we have to pay a lot of money for water over here um, because mm -hmm. we don't have a great supply of it. And so so it's expensive. But the, yeah. the, the way that we can be so wasteful, we could, we could do a lot, couldn't we, if we were just to be a little bit more mm -hmm. conscious about our usage, our consumption, and our behavior towards it. And not only, not only the usage, but then what we do to pollute it on a day-to-day -day basis ourselves. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's so easy to either be innocent of the obvious um, or dismissive of this type of thing because, as we say, there's 70% of the planet's covered in water, so there's enough water. Surely there's enough water, for goodness sake. Go and live in the jungle. It rains every day, you know? But we're running out of clean, fresh sources that we can afford. I mean, by using desalinated water, your water is a hundred times more expensive than the groundwater that I'm withdrawing from the ground here where I live. So, uh, you know, desalination is expensive and it has impacts as well. But, but everybody needs to figure out what their water footprint is, whether it is like leaving the tap on when you're brushing your teeth or having showers that are ridiculously long, or if it's um, from your consumption habits, both like the food that you eat, the clothes that you wear, everything has a water impact, the energy that we use. Uh, so water's needed for all of those things. And when we can kind of quantify that water footprint, then we can make some small changes that, that help. So, well, actually, let's just talk about that one, one thing on there then, because there was a documentary on TV I watched about um, the, the clothing industry and about mm -hmm. how much water is used to make the clothes that we wear and yet how much how much clothing is wasted you know people buy things leave them in their wardrobe for a year don't wear them and and you know they shouldn't have bought them in the first place and they then get thrown out mm -hmm. and 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 you know that's just a waste of money in my mind well i'm a guy i'm not like most my, my wife she doesn't understand that at all she'd be like you need as many clothes as you can fit in your bag <laughs> why would you travel with one suitcase when you could travel with three that's crazy but um but yeah. for, for, for most of us is that we are not aware, most people are not aware mm -hmm. of how much water is being used through those processes just to make our clothes, let alone anything else. And mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. so the, and, and again, there's the occasional documentary, but people seem to turn a blind eye to it. People seem to kind of think it, it, it's not them. It's either a bigger problem or somebody else can deal with it. And so how, how, can, we, how can we be constructive about sharing more information, solution, uh, highlighting a problem and then creating a solution. Because although I've mm -hmm. seen a documentary on it, okay, mm -hmm. 
I didn't do anything about it. And many people haven't even seen the documentary. So what can we do? Yeah, I mean, it, it is awareness. We are so separated from things that we do. We're, we're separated from our from our an understanding of our water use, from an understanding of, of our you know use of other resources and energy and everything else. And so so it's about connecting back to that information in one way or another. I mean, on our food labels, we've all learned to read food labels so we know how many like carbs are in something. Well, what if your clothing came with a label that that explained, you know, maybe the labor practices or the water that was used or the energy that was used so that you had a sense of the impact of that garment. Uh, maybe that would help. So there has to be some more transparency, um, but also in the in the realm of connections, like it, it it's it's getting closer to the source, you know, whether it's um, you know, going to a spring or the seaside to appreciate the beauty of a natural place, or whether it's, whether it's going to a, a farm to see how a chicken is slaughtered that ends up on your plate. Uh, I think that that transparency and connection with processes is important um, because historically, I mean, our grandparents were so much more connected with the, the food that they grew in their farm or in their yard. You know, they made their clothes, they knitted the sweaters. Uh, those were all very tangible actions that they had to make to to get resources for themselves. And now we just use a credit card. You know? <laughs> so somehow we do need to reconnect. It's uh, I, I think sometimes that when you become an adult, it's almost sometimes too late once you are an adult. And as a child, if you can embed that into the thinking of a child and the belief system of a child and, and the conditioning of a child, I think you then have a generation that, that will be not only more aware, but be taking more action because the decisions they make will be based upon their knowledge as opposed mm -hmm. to some, some random information they might have picked up along the way. So do you, do you do much work with kids and do you engage with them? A lot. <laughs> My ultimate goal in life is to be the woman I wish I'd met when I was 10. <laughs> and so I speak to kids all the time. It's a, it's a really important focus of, of my life. And, and, you know, kids are born explorers, you know, they, well, the littlest kids put everything in their mouth to explore, right? Um, they get a little bit older, they start school and they're just so eager for learning. They're curious. They're very tactile, sensation oriented. You know, they go out and they skin their knees, right? And then they, they learn something from that experience. And then they're a little more cautious next time. You know, by the time they're sort of in middle school, they're still like, in a complete sense of wonder. But as the social pressures increase and puberty happens and they get into high school, uh, they get scared to ask questions. They get scared to express themselves. They kind of retreat and, and they lose that sense of exploration. Uh, and so I like to encourage the exploration mindset in, in kids, but also in adults, just reignite the curiosity about the planet, about the world. And, and I think that that opens a lot of doors and, and it creates this open-minded collaborative sharing of information that solves big problems. It's interesting, you know, when you, when you have children and you start to take them to places like these science parks or these different experiential yeah. centers that sometimes as a parent, you start to kind of like experience it through their eyes, the sense of wonder through their mm -hmm. eyes as well. And it sometimes then ignites your thinking. It's like, hold on a minute. I kind of learned about this kind of stuff a long time ago, but I forgot about it. So 
those types of things yeah. I think are really valuable. Okay, I know people are going to be asking me a question that I haven't asked you. They're definitely going to ask after this, so I'm going to ask it beforehand. Um, in the deep blue ocean, it's blooming scary down there, and there's <laughs> monsters in the sea, okay? They're big, scary monsters in the sea. Have you had any experiences with the monsters? First of all, does the Loch Ness Monster exist? I want to know that, first of all. And if he doesn't, okay, have you got any similar tales? Oh, gosh, I hope it exists. I'd love to think that it exists. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, we know more about space than we do about our deep ocean environments and, and caves. So there's plenty of species that we have yet to discover and document. Um, yeah, I've been up close and personal with uh, a lot of big animals from, from sharks to, to whales to, uh, I was the first woman to, to jump in the water and film wild polar bears and walruses from in the water. <laughs> and uh, th those two, by the way, are far more terrifying than any other animal I've encountered. <laughs> polar bears are scary. Polar bears are scary. So in, you've had you've been in the sea with the polar bears swimming around you filming them. Yeah, I was making a documentary about uh, how climate change and the loss of sea ice is affecting the animals in the Arctic. And so so one of the uh, jobs was to get in the water and get pictures of polar bears swimming over top of us. But to do that, you have to jump in the water. And as soon as the polar bear sees you, he swims full bore, top speed, 10 kilometers an hour, because he wants to eat you. <laughs> and when you're just floating on the surface, your little head looks like a seal to him. And as he gets close, you let the air out of your 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 flotation device and you, you drop down and you get the shot of him just passing over your head. Um, and then he usually stops and he starts to dive and you just hope you're faster. <laughs> Shut up, really? No, seriously, seriously. Like in my movie, Under Thin Ice, you'll see the polar bear kind of go whoop, 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 and then start to come down. And then whether it's like his ears hurting or his buoyancy or what, he gives up the chase and goes up. But but a friend of mine, um, Amos Nachum, says that a polar bear chased him to 20 meters of depth before it gave up. The chase. I've never had them go that deep, but um, it's a little sobering to think that they could. That's not even funny. No. <laughs> That's... Yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when you're working in the north trying to film polar bears, even when you're on land, we had 16 to 20 polar bears a day circling and moving in closer and closer, hunting us, predating on us. And we had three Inuit guides full-time, 24 hours a day, literally watching the horizon and scaring bears off with the snowmobiles or firecrackers or anything to make sound. It's, um, I mean, they are absolutely terrifying, voracious predators. And, and these days, there's a lot more skinny polar bears in the north than there ever have been before. Ooh. It, like, when you watch it on TV, there was a, there was a documentary where there was people in this, this metal box um, mm -hmm. and they were in the box and the polar bears came up and around them. And I, and I look at that mm -hmm. and I'm like, why would you do that? Why would you want to be anywhere near that? They, they, they look scary as it is. But the fact that you jump in the sea, you're, you're crazy. The fact that you jump in the sea to film that kind of stuff and risk your life at that level. Well, plus we're just, we're living in tents or in a small wooden cabin sometimes in the north. But yeah, you're living in a tent and there's polar bears predating on the camp. It's like... It's uh, 
It's eye-opening. Jill, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. You're a fascinating lady, and I hope that everyone follows you. I just, for those of you that are listening to this right now or watching us right now, she's mad. She's a one. <laughs> <laughs> but as they say, it's in the genes. <laughs> It is. It is. <laughs> Jill, thank you so much for coming to join us on the show today. I really appreciate your time. Oh, my pleasure. It's wonderful to join you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that experience. I'm still thinking about the polar bears swimming straight towards you at 10 kilometers an hour. I mean, goodness me. Whoa, they say the last impression is the lasting impression, and that's what is in, left indelibly on me right now. Jill's a fantastic lady, brave, courageous, out there trying to make a difference to the world, trying to see parts of the world some of us have never imagined before. And I hope you've really enjoyed this episode and you've taken something positive from it. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi events and Najahi tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word, and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world-leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries, Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. If you've enjoyed this on uh, iTunes, then do me a favor and leave a five-star rating. If you're listening on other podcast apps, I'd really appreciate it if you would leave some comments and give us a follow. The more support we get, the more people get to see this podcast and uh, I'd really appreciate it. And I'm counting on you. I'll see you next time.